0: This is not about politics.
1: This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. I am Benjamin Day.
0: And I'm Stephanie Nakajima.
1: And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care.
0: Today we have Dr. Monica Dutt, who's on the board of Canadian Doctors for Medicare uh, and a public health and family physician in Nova Scotia. We're thrilled to have her on today to talk about a historic legal challenge to the Medicare program that was just heard by the Supreme Court of British Columbia and, spoiler, the victory delivered by the court to the country's single payer system.
1: Yes, I cannot wait to hear about this. Welcome, Dr. Dutt. And um, I'm just curious, before we get into the the topic, um, I mean, you're a family physician, but how did you get involved with... um, or, or felt the need to get involved with health reform, um, protecting the Canadian uh, universal healthcare system, but also trying to expand it and improve upon it.
2: Sure, hi. Uh, well, thanks first for for having me on your podcast. I'm <laughs> really excited to, to be here. I've been a family physician about 10 years now, and I've worked in a, a range of settings from you know, big cities to, to mainly, though, northern and, and rural and small towns across Canada. And I've always been in settings where I've very much appreciated the fact that my patients have access to healthcare wherever we are, whether it's a small town or a big city, you know, there's, there's variations of course, across the country, but fundamentally all of my patients do not need to worry about accessing physician and hospital care. They do not need to pay when they come see me or when they get to the hospital, they know they can count on that care, and that's always been uh, really important to me. I also work in public health and very much care about health policies that you know benefit the health of a community, of a population, and absolutely access to to health care is a fundamental determinant of health. And I think it's something that I wanted to to support in a in a, every way I can. And one of those ways mm-hmm. has been through involvement with, Canadian Doctors for Medicare for about the last ten years, and CDM or Canadian Doctors for Medicare is a is a nonprofit organization. We've existed just over ten years, and our kind of fundamental goal is to maintain and improve our single payer publicly funded healthcare system in Canada. So we want to maintain that single payer, but at the same time know that there's there's always. Things we can do to make it better, um, but we can do that within a single payer system.
0: So I think that um it might be a bit confusing for our listeners uh to hear that this the Canadian single-payer healthcare system is also called Medicare, since we have a program called Medicare that only you know is available mm. for seniors mm-hmm. 65 and older. Um, whereas, you know, Canadian Medicare is of course uh, accessible to everybody from cradle to grave. So can you just talk a little bit about how Canadian Medicare works? Um, are, there, are there physician networks? Can you ever lose your coverage? Are you allowed to just buy out of the system or pay to jump the queue?
2: So we do call our, our healthcare system Medicare in Canada. At the same time, what it actually is, it's a series of, we have provinces and territories. Um, so there are 13 provincial and territorial health insurance programs across the country. So every province and territory is responsible for delivering care under the umbrella of what's called the Canada Health Act, which outlines the the core principles of of Medicare in Canada. And one of those is is universality. But really, it's a, a series of health insurance plans that everyone is covered for primarily for physician and hospital services so for example where i work i see patients i bill my provincial health insurance program i get paid in that way i cannot bill a private insurance program for for my services because it is publicly funded i'm not allowed to then go in and bill a a private insurance program Mm -hmm. so For the pieces that are covered publicly through our universal system, you cannot buy insurance to go see a physician or go to a a hospital privately. You need to access it through the public system just as as everyone else does. We do have some of our care, about 30%, that is privately paid for, either through supplemental insurance or through um, private payment. And that covers pieces like dental care, some medications, Physiotherapy, other kind of allied health professionals. And to be honest, it's a gap in that we don't cover some of those pieces, but the vast majority of, of care is covered under our public system.
1: Well, that, that brings us right to the topic at hand, which is this lawsuit. Um, so the lawsuit was called Cambie Surgeries versus British Columbia. Of, of course, it was a, a bunch of surgeons. And I was uh, ashamed to find out that the lead plaintiff for Canby Surgeries, who is attacking this Canadian uh, single-payer healthcare system, was Dr. Brian Day. Um, as a Benjamin Day, I would like to apologize and tap of, on behalf of the entire global uh, Day clan, and we promised promise to to kick him out um, and exile him for, for the rest of his life for this transgression. Uh, but. <laughs> It's your
0: it's your evil counterpart in the parallel universe. I know of, of exactly.
1: <laughs> it's like uh, he he probably looks like me, but with Brian a mustache Day. on or something, and a curly <laughs> mustache. Um, so that's Frenchophobic. <laughs> good to know. Um, that's true. Well, there is a lot of Frenchophobe out there. Um, they have a great healthcare <laughs> system, though. So um, tell us a little bit about like what was this lawsuit trying to do? Why were they suing uh, British Columbia? And, you know, what would have happened if it if they had won?
2: So this is a, a court case that started back in 2016, pretty much exactly four years ago. So it's been a very long trial. And what was argued by the plaintiffs led by Dr. Brian Day, and I, I wouldn't slight all physicians, we have, uh, sorry, all surgeons, we have some <laughs> fantastic surgeons that, that true, support yep. CDM, <laughs> but he does happen <laughs> to be uh, an orthopedic surgeon. And what... <laughs> he and the plaintiffs were arguing was that the British Columbia, which is our, a province on the West Coast, that BC's Medicare Protection Act infringes on our constitutional rights. And the constitutional rights they were concerned about were the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And I'm not a legal expert, so I don't tend to go so much into all the legal aspects of it. But what the plaintiffs were saying infringed on our rights is that they weren't able to do three things. And the three things they wanted were were these three things. One is for doctors to be able to extra bill. So essentially, for example, I get paid by my provincial health insurance plan, but I should also, according to them, be able to charge extra and get paid more by people either out of pocket or through insurance. And so that was one thing that they were asking for and clearly that would, you know, favor people who could either get the insurance or pay more. They also wanted to have private duplicate insurance. So as I said, you can't currently get private health insurance for the publicly funded aspects of our healthcare system. So what they wanted was to be able to bill private insurers for people who wanted faster access to hospital and physician care. So again, only people who could afford this Q j- jumping type of insurance would be the ones who would be able to, to get ahead in line. And then the last thing they wanted was, was dual practice. And so right now, typically you can't as a physician practice in both the public pay system and the private pay system. So what they wanted was that a physician should be able to either build a public system Or the private system or charge someone out of pocket or do a combination of all of that so again you know beyond all the details what that ultimately means is that people who could pay more out of pocket or who were you know healthier and wealthier and could access insurance more easily would be the ones who would likely be seen first so that was essentially what the plaintiffs and dr day were asking for and the judge dismissed all of those claims and said that if any of those pieces were allowed, it would undermine our universal publicly funded healthcare system.
0: Yeah, and I'm so happy to hear that the public system prevailed here, and I'm really interested to hear um, what expert testimonial went down and why the court ended up, how did the court end up coming to the decision that it made?
2: Yeah, there were witnesses who were brought from all kinds of different backgrounds, a whole range of of expert witnesses in, in Canadian healthcare and different international systems. And so the, the judge kind of considered all of that evidence and that the actual court decision is 880 pages. So it is extremely long and detailed. If you ever go to the Canadian Doctors <laughs> for Medicare website, we have put together a 45-ish page document that's a, a beautiful summary of, of the key points. But essentially what he found was that if all of these pieces that were being asked for for the plaintiffs were allowed, it would make our healthcare system far more inequitable, meaning things that would happen were things like the wait times, in fact, being increased rather than decreased for people who were in the public system. Mm -hmm. And there was a range of reasons why that would include, you know, people from the public system, hospital, uh, sorry, physicians, nurses, you know, cleaning staff, all kinds of different people who work in healthcare moving over to the private system. So that would leave, you know, fewer in the public system. And it would also leave people with more complex health needs who may be lower income, who may have disabilities, who may have, you know, other needs um, in the public system. And so, you know, places like Australia and New Zealand have showed us that often the the public wait times can go down. Sorry, can increase when you do have this this parallel system Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they also found that you know having a private insurance system it would benefit people who are healthier and wealthier which again makes sense it's easier to get insurance if you don't have pre-existing conditions so it's going to benefit people who are are healthier and wealthier and then there's a whole range of other findings I'll just mention one other he also um, brought up the, what he, his words are the perverse incentives that would arise for physicians when they have a choice between, you know, patients that they may earn more money from and, you know, not to fault anybody because, you know, often who wouldn't want a job that might pay more than, than what you're being paid right now? But that would ultimately be what happens, that it would favor people who, who could pay more. And so... Those are just some of the reasons that the judge brought up to show that um, these types of, of private payment for publicly funded um, health care, how that would undermine our system.
1: Yeah, I, the most striking thing to me about what you said and, and just my own perusing of the findings was uh, this notion that countries who had tried adding you know a, a, a parallel private insurance system to their public system, it, it did not reduce wait times, and obviously it increased wait times for people stuck in the public system, um, and that countries who have long had a parallel system, uh, really private competition has no impact reducing wait times. Um, and this will probably come as a surprise to people in the United States who are just inundated with this talking point that if we were to move to a single payer health care system, universal health care system, that it would uh, cause wait times because they have been, innocu- they've been, I think, uh, they've seen everywhere in the media and in the press uh, here that that is what you kind of get. That's like the cost of getting a universal healthcare system is getting stuck with wait times, but that was not what the findings were here. Um, so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about, you know, what is it that causes wait times if it has nothing to do really with um, you know, whether you have competition in your system or not, or if you have competition in your system, it, it could actually worsen wait times, uh, particularly for those who are using the pub- public system.
2: Right what the judge commented on was by looking at different systems that had similarities. There's no kind of exact comparison, but what they looked at were were places like New Zealand and Australia and the UK, and even within Canada in one province that a previous court case had allowed very limited private insurance, that all of these things actually bore out that that Undermine the system, the the pieces that that I was just talking about, that went allowing all of those pieces actually um, uh, it did or it could increase wait times for for people in the public system. So so ultimately, you know, this court case was not about decreasing wait times. It was about increasing income for physicians and for and profits for shareholders in private healthcare facilities. So. In the end, what we really need to focus on is not how we fund the system because we know that single-payer publicly funded is the, the model that leads to the most equity, but we need to focus on how we deliver healthcare, which absolutely there are things we can do better in Canada and anything that isn't working as well, it's not because of the single-payer publicly-funded aspect. It's because we can be doing a better job of delivering health care. But even within that, the judge commented and the evidence showed that when it comes to urgent and emergency care, we do really well. So when people talk about people dying on wait lists, that doesn't happen because we are very much able to get urgent care to people i know that if i have a patient who's worsening i have ways as a physician that i can advocate for my patient and ensure they get soon seen sooner and i do that you know several times a week with something changes with a patient i will try to have them be seen sooner through the public system but we do have some wait times in areas that are considered um Uh, non-urgent although they are often still very important to people's quality of life and so we absolutely need to look at ways to improve that and there's many examples of how that's happening in Canada and I'll just give one example that's becoming more and more the norm and that's this idea of centralized referrals so some of the patients I refer to a certain specialty I need to pick a doctor's name I don't know what their wait list is I have no idea who's as longer, who's as shorter, and I just send it off to someone. Whereas in other specialties, it's a group, you send it to the group, whoever the next, for example, surgeon is available, they see them, and that has significantly cut down on wait time. So it's those types of initiatives that are decreasing wait times and that we need to do more of.
0: Yeah, just taking a step back um, to think about like the impact of this case, I mean, it's to me so interesting as an American that... Um, The system could be challenged on the principle of, like, freedom, you know, in quotes, and could come out explicitly confirming the primacy of uh, the principle of equity, Um, you know, just coming from a system where inequality is so baked into the system, you can buy uh, health insurance that, like, constricts your choices, you can buy health insurance with higher deductible and stuff, and... Liberals defend this inequality uh, as choice, you know, even though it's often a matter of, like, what is affordable for people. Um, And I just think that that's just so interesting that the question of whether or not you can pay more to see another doctor or see a doctor faster, you know... um, that in the United States, it would be like a no-brainer, and it would actually, I think that there would be like a conflict for a lot of people over the concept of freedom. But there it's clear, um, it's very clear how um, this actually undermines equity in the system and that can be upheld at you know the highest court. I just wanna ask, like, if this court case had gone the other way, if the bad guys had won, what would have been the impact on your practice and your patients? I mean, I know you're in Nova Scotia, so maybe there would have been a ripple
2: effect. Yeah, but, absolutely, there would not. have been ripple effects. So it probably still would have been appealed by the the defendants, the government. But just say that, you know, they won and that had implications across the country, it would set a precedent for, for every province and territory. So if this was allowed in British Columbia, absolutely, it would um, have impacts across the country so that it would lead to all the the outcomes that the judge commented on could happen, so increasing inequities, um, creating these incentives for for income and profit rather than than patient care being the the primary concern. So. The, there's a, you know, profound relief that that didn't happen in this court case. And even beyond that, you know, even though, you know, it doesn't necessarily change exactly what we're doing now, because, you know, the, the they did lose the court case, it gives us this document that reviewed evidence that brought together all these key points and has now articulated it in a, uh, a court decision. So any future court case that may be similar, because I'm sure there's going to be others in other provinces. This isn't the, the end of, of people wanting to, to find ways to, to increase, you know, shareholder and, and personal profit. Mm-hmm. Um, but now this, this is an incredibly strongly worded, decisive judgment that I think will be hopefully very hard to, to argue against. But I was just maybe just to your question specifically. I work in an area and with patients who struggle often with just day to day because of all kinds of you kind know, of systemic issues that have made it incredibly hard to you know find housing and to to have a decent income and to afford you know food. And if if it ended up in a system where some physicians would see people who could pay more ahead of them, it would be incredibly devastating to, to people's health to not be able to, to have that access to healthcare.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, I guess I, I'm curious now if you have any tips for takeaways from well uh, uh, the ruling, but also, as you say, sort of the compilation of uh, overwhelming global evidence um, for the United States context. Um, I mean, we have some... Uh, very popular kind of, I think what are seen in the US as liberals, you know, uh, Ezra Klein, who runs Vox, we have, you know, um, a number of New York Times columnists, um, um, and uh, Washington Post columnists, and all of these kind of seen as liberal outlets tend to say that look, if you go to a universal single payer healthcare system, um, the way that you're controlling costs is by the government saying no this is what Ezra Klein's line is. It's like you have to uh, essentially um, uh, vet care, and you're you're cutting down and rationing essentially, and that's how you control costs <laughs> under universal healthcare system. And that wait times are kind of the cost of it. Um, and another thing, a phenomenon we're kind of seeing in the debate in the U.S. context is uh, sometimes we'll see um, sort of fake appeals to other European countries like Germany. Um, which uh, the claim will be, well, Germany has private health insurance. So you know you don't need to get rid of private health insurance companies or the profit motive, as you were talking about. Uh, all you need to do is just regulate them a bit. Um, and I think they have no idea what's actually going on in Germany. <laughs> um, but I mean, what is the kind of the takeaway, um, assuming that we are able to win a major health reform you know, beyond the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare here in the United States, um, I guess What coming out of this lawsuit is a cautionary tale for us uh, with our next step of health reform?
2: I think a a lesson is that, you know, change happens and it can happen and it will happen. And I know, you know, many people have been fighting in the U.S. for for so many years. And, you know, it was similar for some time in Canada. And there was opposition. There was physician opposition. There were physician strikes. So, So it wasn't kind of an easy... Um, an easy path to having uh, a universal, publicly funded system, but it didn't actually, in the end, you know, it took a decades to happen. But it it didn't take you know a hundred years. It took you know forty years to get from you know one place to another, and. The ultimate change happened within over 10, 15 years, and I think you've already had so much groundwork that you've already laid that that it really is possible for for change to happen. You have, mm-hmm. you know, decisions like this court case that, although it was a long, long fight, it really, you know, solidified a lot of I think the arguments that all of you make too about why publicly funded healthcare uh, needs to be a, a fundamental basis of 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 your healthcare system. And I think, you know, you really do have both the, the evidence on your side, which I think is, you know, incredibly powerful. And, you know, what's kept it going, I think, in a large part in Canada is also the, you know, just the value side of it, that people support the system. You know, survey after survey show, you know, 90% of Canadians, you know, would not change the publicly funded system aspect of it and so i think you're you're really from what i see especially you know in the time of a pandemic when healthcare is just such a vital piece and a barrier to being able to to fight a a pandemic i i think and i hope it's becoming even more obvious that without universal care you just you can't deal with the day-to-day much less these these huge global threats
1: are you saying things aren't going well in the United States <laughs> addressing coronavirus? <laughs>
2: um, the border is still closed.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you wanna, might want to keep it that way for a while.
2: <laughs> oh, I wish I wish you all the best. It's it's it must be hard, especially in in some places.
1: But well, yeah, every country needs a cautionary tale nearby. Yes. So we're just doing our part exactly. <laughs> okay.
0: I'm sure all y'all Canadians are really happy on that side of the board. Well, right right.
2: we've had some changes lately, too. but but yeah, it it is it, it's challenging for sure.
0: It's so good to hear that Canadians overwhelmingly still support. Uh, their public health system and keeping it public as well. It's good to hear, you know, this Canadian Doctors for Medicare, which still wants to keep improving the system and fighting for the system. And I just want to know, what is next for you guys? I mean, what else, you know, what are the big projects um, of improvement for the Canadian healthcare system?
2: A major focus that we have had is for universal pharmacare. So that has also been another, you know, thinking of policy areas that you Advocate for years and years and years. It's it that has been you know decades too of of reports and and you know reviews saying that it's a missing part of our our healthcare system. So for example, you might get medications paid for in hospital, but as soon as you leave that hospital, you might have a prescription that you can't afford to fill, and that makes no sense at all. So. We have long been advocating for that, along with many, many other partners and, and unions and community organizations. And so, you know, it's we've moved slowly towards it. We actually, there's a, a government speech coming this week that will set priorities for kind of a new session of government. And so, you know, we always live in hope that, you know, the next step will be announced with the next big announcement, but that that's a major one. Um, and then along with that are other pieces like especially dental care and some other aspects of healthcare that are not part of our publicly funded system. Long-term care has absolutely come up, in, especially during the pandemic, and, and the people who have, who have suffered greatly because of lack of, of I think, often publicly funded investment in our, our long-term care homes. So those are a few of the, the priorities, with pharmacare being one for uh, Canadian doctors, for Medicare in particular, that we've been really focused on.
1: Yeah, well, I think that just goes to show that, you know, victories in either of our countries for for universal public access um, do kind of reverberate across the borders. Um, I think this lawsuit is really gonna help with our movement and especially with this kind of false debate over (laughs) trade-offs between universal healthcare and wait lists or waiting times. (laughs) Um, So we will race you to the next uh, major victory in improving our healthcare systems. Um, That's a good race to Thank be you in. so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you. Thank you for for having me.